0: Welcome to Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth and this is a new series from Lacuna magazine. I'm going to be speaking with some of the most interesting thinkers working today who are looking at the environment and trying to understand our place in it. How we think about the crises that we're currently living through, climate change, the sixth extinction, the extinguishing of indigenous cultures. It's a place to take a wider look at how we might be able to live in these challenging times. Today, I'm speaking with Alistair McIntosh, a Scottish writer, academic, and activist.
1: All the time, you're using a compass. You are walking on that pilgrimage of life, holding a mental compass. And the needle that points north asks a question, and that question is does it give life?
0: Alistair was once a professor of mine at the Centre for Human Ecology, of which he is both fellow and former director. A Quaker, his work has encompassed land reform, globalization nonviolence, psychology, spirituality and ecology. His best-known book is Soil and Soul, which none other than Tom York described as very inspiring. Alongside an autobiography of both his life and thought, it details two campaigns he worked on in Scotland, one the community buyout on the Isle of Egg, the other against the super quarry on Harris. His most recent book, published in 2016, is Poacher's Pilgrimage. On the face of it, a 12-day walk across the islands of Harris and Lewis where he grew up, but it is also very much a pilgrimage into the spiritual life of both the island and himself. I met up with Alistair in his house in Govan in Glasgow in November. I began by asking him how the islands of his childhood, the islands he walks across in Poacher's Pilgrimage, And all the childhood memories of growing up on those islands have fed into the work that he does now.
1: Well, you make me think of one of the women I met in one of the villages on the way who was actually an incomer to the island and had been there for a long time and was well accepted on the island. And she said, when you first come to the island, you have no idea how deep the culture is. And she likened it to geological strata. So I think there's these many layers of psychological and spiritual depth when you encounter a place, a real place, with real people, some of whom might have connected very recently, like the woman I've just mentioned, others whose connection there goes back to prehistoric times, and who can perhaps trace their family ancestry back hundreds of years. And as you settle into a place, those layers of depth start to manifest and speak with inner voices that can be very pertinent to the times we find ourselves in today.
0: So this walk seems to be uh, refreshing sort of tapping back into those voices that you'd grown up with.
1: Yes, I felt the urge to make a pilgrimage to my own island. It was like a kind of umbilical cord going under the sea and tugging at me. And I'd been thinking about doing it for some years and finally thought, you know, um, I was then, what, in my mid-50s? I thought, if I don't do it now, I'll probably never do it. So I went back not knowing what I would experience. And... One of the strange things, Adam, was that um, when I got back from it, my wife said, well, did much happen? Are you going to write a book about it? And I said, no, I don't think so. You know, it's just just walking through the island. And then gradually as it settled, it was like these depth charges going off as I started to realise what I had actually experienced and how deeply it wove together, so there was never a redundant incident. There wasn't a single meeting with somebody on the road. Or reflection during the four days I was entirely alone without meeting anybody, going through the mountains and camping out wild, of course. There was nothing wasted. There was nothing that when I eventually, over the course of seven years of writing Poacher's pilgrimage,
0: came to draw it all together, could really have been cut out. You live in Glasgow now, but you grew up in Lewis. And at least from reading this book, it feels like that is the land that's moved you to do the work that you do.
1: Absolutely. and Not just the land, but the people of the land. That I was raised in a community of place, I live now in Govan, which is the shipbuilding, largely former shipbuilding area of Glasgow, a hard-pressed hard, hard pressed area of Glasgow, as many of your listeners will know from the BBC series, of C. Nesbitt. And this, too, is a community of place. A community of place, I would say, is any place where... A significant portion of the people living in it feel that the place itself really matters it is geographically constellated it is more than just a community of interests it is a geographical and even geological community and so connects us very deeply back through time and raises in us questions of our own relationship to time our own relationship to eternity, which is a large part of the spiritual journey that I'm on in Poach's pilgrimage.
0: So as well as the human life on the island, you discuss the wild a lot as well. There's four days that you're camping out and see no one. There's a place where you write about the fairies. You talk about that ever-present part of the island's myths Uh, the the fairies are the the wilderness personified and i'm interested that in that i think from from having been in alaska recently that and and there's this idea of a real fetishization of wilderness in alaska that that wilderness experience and i I suppose i've come to see wilderness in one way as quite a problematic thing And, and it's kind of the same in scotland as we think of the highlands as being wild but that's because we're blind to the clearances and the history that should be there not to mention that there's no trees anymore. And we also here have what we think of these very diminishing wildernesses now. But you in the book seem to write about wilderness in quite a different way.
1: Well, I have no hesitation in referring to remote areas that have been humanly modified mainly by grazing patterns as wilderness. But I think I'm coming at it from that Gaelic sense, garlic cultural sense that I discuss in the book. Where it's more about inner experience. It's more about spaces of the mind and what can happen to the mind in certain spaces. And you see, the reason this is so strong in the culture that I was raised in is because we would spend a lot of time alone, or maybe with just one other person or the dog, out after sheep, cutting peats fishing that kind of stuff solitude was something we were not afraid of and people would often seek out you'll have stories of people going down to the sea and when there's a storm on singing the psalms at top of their voices where the sounds of the waves will prevent themselves from being embarrassed by being heard back in the village and so on but that kind of stuff. I to the hills will lift mine eyes, that Mm -hmm. sense of going to the hills and communing with your God or however else you would want to understand spiritual reality. Mm -hmm. And of course this is something that, you know, our pagan friends of whom you and I have many can also connect with because that's what they do. I think one of the richnesses of finding it in my own culture is that it's also experienced as a very human thing the way that I quote what a man from Scalpy a mariner from Scalpy told me of his mother's generation how they had praying points out in the moors places where they would go to when they wanted to pray and how when the fishing boats were out in the time before VHF radio and sat nav and all the rest of it and it was a wild night the women would sometimes go to these places and pray for the safety of their men and what that does is it takes you know you're in a way you're going into wilderness but also in a way that has a very human connection and you're walking on that edge you're doing that shamanic thing of one foot in this world one foot in the other world you're walking on the edge between the known and the unknown, between the outer life and the inner life and fairy is one of the ways in which the mysteries of that inner life the depths of the individual and collective unconscious is given representation in mythology and folklore and hence in the book I tell a number of traditional fairy stories, but they are rich with archetypal meaning. Mm. Um they are mind blowing stories. These things are de- depth charge. You think, Oh, that's a that's a very, you know, um folksy sort of tale, good one for the kids, but actually it then starts going off and you realize that these things are part of the what some people would call the technology of the unconscious.
0: I'm Adam Weymouth, this is Spoken Earth, and today I'm speaking to Alistair McIntosh, the Scottish writer, academic and activist. So your first major book, Soil and Soul, which very much focuses on land reform and on community, and and is centred around those two big campaigns, huge campaigns that you were involved in, the defeating the super quarry on the Isle of Harris and the community buyout of the Isle of Egg. Yeah. Uh, both those campaigns seem to me that they're very driven by a connection to land underpinning underpinning all of the work that, that, that you do. And there's always that first line of Soil and Soul which has stuck with me. And you say uh, that, that that when you were a young boy People told you that if you dug straight down you would get to Australia and how later in your life you've come to realise that in many ways that is true because if you dig from where you stand you end up becoming connected to everywhere. But I suppose I feel, for those of us that don't feel like that we have that connection to land, I mean if if I dig straight down from where I stand in London, I feel like I just hit concrete.
1: <laughs> <laughs> drill, man, drill. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I suppose, I suppose if this activism does, does need this connection to land and to community to really make a difference, what, what did so many people do that feel like they have no connection at all to the place where they live?
1: Where did you grow up? Was it? Salisbury. Salisbury, yeah. yeah. I mean, I get people say what you've just said to me like when I speak in London, and they say, well, we can't do that here. And I say to them, well, you know, I I don't know the literature of this part of the world well, but, you know, not far from here you've got Wessex and what I see in the novels of Thomas uh, um, Thomas Hardy or Mary Webb, novels like Gone to Earth. I kind of see it there as well, if you dig Or I read what I consider to be the greatest mystical poem in the English language, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. And he's got that bit where they're going along on the London Underground and the train stops for an undue period of time. And it's like the unconscious starts opening up in the passengers. And so I'm kind of thinking, well... You know, maybe there's shamanic work to be done here too. It's easier where I come from because the tradition, I would have to say, is still alive because every time I go back, I have this kind of conversation with friends on the island. And we all say, well, you know, the people who experience that, they're all dying off now. So-and-so was buried just the other day. And then we look around at each other and, What I say to them is, well, you know, it will die off if we don't continue it. But I also think that in these other places, too, you can develop deep, meaningless place. You know, I draw a lot on Christian tradition, and I'm a Quaker, and the big thing that we focus in on on the Quakers is the idea that the Spirit comes alive in us and moves us. Whatever you want to call it, the spirit of life, the spirit of love made manifest, the Holy Spirit, it comes alive and recreates us in community with one another, if we create openings for it. That kind of thing really excites me. Mm. We've been doing that in Scotland with modern Scottish land reform, and the way in which you know we've drawn on the work of poets like Kenneth White with his geo poetics. Yeah. But it can be done elsewhere, but people need the courage and encouragement to do that. Mm -hmm. You see, I've been hugely helped in my work by having tradition bearers bearers, quite literally, I think, you know, sitting one day in the seat that I am in now and an old Gaelic-speaking woman across from me and basically saying to me, you must stand in the ground you're standing in the bardic ground. She said, you are a bard, Alistair. You must stand in that ground. It was while I was writing Poacher's Pilgrimage and I was being hesitant about saying some of the things I was saying. And she said, no, you must do this work. And basically put her blessing on me to do that. Now, when that kind of thing happens, it it really helps you because you are no longer... You're being told that you're no longer just coming from your ego as a writer, but you're coming from out of the carrying stream of the culture. Note that expression, it's a Scottish expression, the carrying stream of the culture. And that's the shamanic function. As Eliade and Murcia Eliade and the Romanian ethnographer and Joseph Campbell, the Irish-American ethnographer or Mythologist, I should say, both say the shamanic role is to step out of the consensus trance of normal reality and to go into the spiritual world where you see at a deeper level what is happening in the psyche of the people, and then to come back in and open the flow of life back into the people's. Condition. How do you open the flow of life? Well, it's not really you that does it, but your role in doing it is to raise consciousness. Paulo Freire of Brazil calls it conscientization the coming together of consciousness and conscience with a bearing upon your life and what needs to change in your life. And that's kind of what, certainly, it's what I was doing, and people around me, like Tom Facize of Skorig, were doing. With respect to land reform in Scotland in those early days, it's now become mainstream. I mean, we've now got 3% of Scotland's land, 530,000 acres, back into community land ownership.
0: Mm. But but, but it's, it's mainstream in Scotland, but in England it's still... No-one talks about it, no-one thinks about it. And And land reform seems so much more important than just the land reform. Exactly. It's that connection, that opening up of the connection to the land... It feels like it's feeding so much more than that. Because you
1: know, people think land reform must be about agriculture. Agriculture is a small part of it. Mm-hmm. Land reform, you're know, the main drivers of land reform are uh, socially affordable housing. So communities then control the ability to have rented property in the hands of democratically elected community oversight. Um entrepreneurship, small businesses and what have you that can be gotten going like you see in all of these Scottish land reform contexts. Um, Renewable energy very often, um, small-scale hydro and wind power, which can make massive contribution to the revenues of a community group. And then the biggest one of all is the empowerment that comes from it. That when you see people... You know, when I go up to... um, islands and I see people coming back because they are able to live in a place they couldn't previously live because of landlordism but they've now got a low-cost housing plot or rental accommodation and there's now a matrix of little jobs that they can make a living out of when when, when I see that coming back and people actively engaging in local democracy so in, in a land trust the community the resident community will vote to elect their own directors who will revolve around typically on a three-year cycle. And so if you don't like the way it's running, then stand for election and get yourself elected. And that brings huge empowerment into the place. Um, It gives opportunities to the young that are completely missing otherwise. It gives opportunities that lift them out of the mainstream capitalist world and into a context that I wouldn't call communist, at least in any state sense of communist, but which is very much communitarian. And that gives life, and it opens up flows of life in people. That's what's happening in Scotland today.
0: And it must be so gratifying to see those initial buyouts that happened in Egg and happened in Ascent that have taken on this? It's
1: just amazing. I mean, in July this year, I was asked to give the keynote address to the Ascent Crofters Trust, which was the first of these that actually succeeded 25 years ago. In June last year, I gave the keynote to the Egg Trust buyout, which succeeded after the Ascent one, but the campaign on Egg took six years. So we'd actually started the Egg Trust before absent, and the one was fertilizing the other, cross-fertilizing the other with ideas. And, you know, to be going back 20, 25 years on and to be invited by these communities to speak at their celebratory events, it's, it's something I never thought would happen. Because you can't do this work without having to reality test and say, are we just off the wall with this? Because most people think we are. (laughs) And then these things actually happened, and not only that, they've stabilised, and they're now sharing their experience literally all over the world. Um, I bring groups from West Papua in Indonesia to see what is happening on Egg in North Harris, in Park and Stone Away, in Lewis, in Finfrey, in all these places. And they go back inspired about what they can do. And you know what West Papua is like. You know, in Indonesia, I'm talking about the Indonesian side of New Guinea. You know how difficult that is. And these folk, and we're talking here grassroots people, but also politicians and civil servants, and they go back. With new ideas about how you can be human, living with your place, and you know, they've passed laws now that are making it much more difficult for the big logging companies and oil palm companies to cut traditional forests down because they're empowering the people and it's that is actually happening it's I really have to pinch myself, yeah. but there you have it, and what's important is this Adam is it. All the time you're using a compass. You're walking on that pilgrimage of life, holding a mental compass. And the needle that points north asks a question. And that question is, does it give life? Mm -hmm. Is what we are doing in this very moment giving life? Which, when somebody says, what do you mean by that? I mean, I sometimes... Follow it up by saying, life as love made manifest.
0: I'm Adam Weymouth, this is Spoken Earth, and today I'm in conversation with Alistair Macintosh, the writer, academic and activist. A lot of Alistair's writing draws on the old bardic traditions and the poets of Scotland, And here he is telling me about the great Scottish folklorist Hamish Henderson.
1: Hamish's work as an ethnographer was collecting songs and poems from people who were often just not recognised in Scottish society, especially the traveller community, what in England you might call the gypsy traveller community, except the term gypsy generally wouldn't be used here in Scotland. And these people have often been treated appallingly. They have have been treated appallingly in history and still Mm. prejudice against them. But they are the people that carry the deep culture. They've held on to the songs around their campfires that have been lost elsewhere. So Hamish did he's collecting amongst those and found this deep genuineness that their persecutors lacked. And he came out with this expression that it is hard... For the non genuine person to believe that the genuine person actually exists.
0: Which I think is very true. And you talking about that compass before, but to bring it back to activism and to bring it back to people making change, we obviously know there's a huge amount of cynicism and a huge amount of burnout, and, and there's a huge amount of stress as well. The report that came out this week, the WWF report about. 60% of mammals and birds have gone extinct since 1970. And, and the report last week that we have 12 years to stop climate change. But then to try and have this grounded spiritual approach to making change feels... Well,
1: that's where, you know, I've mentioned the power of Christian insight. But there's also great power in the Buddhist insight. That all life entails suffering. Mm-hmm. And... That a helpful attitude to that is to wake up to suffering and its causes in attachment, in clinging, in holding on to things. And with that, to do what I call planetary hospice work. So you or I are not going to be able to greatly change the extinction rate. But what we can do is we can work in ways that hold the consciousness of what is happening. And use that to encourage change in how we are human. So I would give you know, for my own work, land reform as a major example of change happening in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, other examples, although I'm not good at it because I'm you know, I grew up in a context where we would hunt and fish and grow our own food and so on. So I can't claim many brownie points in this, but I note with interest a lot of people going towards vegetarian and even vegan dietary orientations. So that's the way in which we translate awareness into change. But you don't get there unless you face the suffering. If you're in denial of the suffering, if you're in denial of what's happening to the planet, what it's doing to us, If you're in denial of our own complicity in it all, then you don't see it. And then, as Jung says, the shadow denied is a shadow that trips you up. So the way that I see present times is that the outer work on issues like climate change and loss of biodiversity needs to be complemented with inner psychological and even spiritual work so that we develop the strength to carry what is being presented to us. I can't take it further than that. Mm. All I can say is that having that strength is what's carried me through some difficult campaigns, Mm. carries me in times of failure as well as in times of success.
0: Mm. And to feel that it's possible to shirk that side of things, to feel that there's not enough time for that is a naivety and is, is is ignoring the work that needs to be done.
1: Well, Adam, you know, as long as we are here right now, Ram Das, an American Hindu spiritual teacher, uses the expression, be here now. As long as we are here now, there is still work to be done. We're not, the game's not over yet. Um, all my adult life, since becoming aware of environmental issues... Probably in the late sixties, first time, I've heard people saying we've only got ten years left, and still they're saying we've only got ten years left. I guarantee you, in a hundred years' time, relative to where they are at then there will still be people saying we've only got ten years left at one level, it's true you know extinctions are happening on a multiple basis every day at another level. Be careful we don't get frozen into inaction or cynicism. We must dance with what life there is to dance with, and only in that dance will opportunities for new life and the conservation of existing life come alive.
0: I'm Adam Weymouth and this is Spoken out.
1: You know, she teaches us what does she teach us about love really hello sweetheart uh, this is our stray cat Mabel who turned up an old woman said to me just after she came, look at her give me a rub, uh, an old woman came and said, you know, cats love people. And I was fairly suspicious, having read some of the um, sort of zoological material. said that says, no, cats are very good at manipulating people. And I look at her and I kind of think, well, you know, her manipulation in terms of, you know, chumming up because she's probably thinking it's time I fed her or something, it's no different from what we do. Mm-hmm. So we can learn a lot about ourselves through that. But also you get a lot of affection. She's you know, tonight when Veren comes home, she'll go she'll hear Veren coming and she'll go rushing to the door and then big roly poly and she'll be so happy just to see somebody that she loves back home again. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. I don't know if that's relevant to your interview. You can cut it out if not. <laughs> but these things, um these things matter, you know, these things are avenues to our connection. You're saying, what about if you're living in Winchester or London or wherever? What about? Well, ask your cat. Mm -hmm. Or I once heard Arnie Ness say, you know, not everybody can have a garden, but everybody can have a window box.
0: Mm.
1: And that's important too.
0: Yes. Which I suppose comes close to There's there's that story you tell in the Spiritual Activism Handbook about the Chinese sage which is pursued over a cliff by a tiger. And the sage grabs a branch on the way down and is hanging on this branch, looking at this beautiful blossom on the branch, and is caught between this drop and the tiger's mouth. And he hangs there admiring the blossom.
1: Yes, and he says, what a beautiful flower. He doesn't let the opportunity pass to let beauty pass. And sometimes, you know, when I'm wrestling with the issues I'm involved with, in fact, even today, before you came, I went and had a lie down and just so many things buzzing in my head. And I was feeling a bit burdened by it all. And I just, you know, remembered those spiritual teachings. Another one, the best place for meditation is in the mouth of the tiger. And I just looked at all of these issues in my mind. I kind of laid them out like on a table in my mind. Talks that I've got coming up and I've not yet prepared and this and that I need to do and such and such a situation with so and so and you know the whole brouhaha. And I just reminded myself, don't hold on to this at an ego level. Let go into the depths. Says a cat giving a meow. out. Um, let go into the depths. This is bigger than just your work or my work. This is the work of the unfolding of the Dharma, the movement of the Tao, the working of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful. You see, let it go. And, you know, to think you've got to be fully up to scratch in it all and get it all perfect that too is an ego attachment one of the things that trips us up, that pulls us out of the flow, that means that we lose connection with what people are most needing from us
0: that's how I'm trying to work on it anyway Adam And does that require a kind of personal maintenance as well? like a daily spiritual practice or a way of not getting pulled too far one way or the other being able to stay with that compass i suppose
1: well it's interesting i mean varen my wife you know she does a daily meditation and yoga and so on at quite some length and i used to do regular twice a day meditation i don't do it like that these days but what i do do is i'm constantly pulling myself back back into what I call the God space. Yeah. Have I forgotten myself with respect to being in the God space? Be still and know that I am God, says one of the Psalms. Ram das be here now, the sacrament of the present moment, that kind of stuff. Do you see how even as we're talking about this, the intensity of connection is between us is deepening? You can see it in the eye, the people won't hear it, but the, you can see it in the eye contact. You see, it. these things pull you back onto that compass directed path. Does it give life? And, you know, this is really important that quite often, I would even say very often, that does it give life means are you looking after yourself? in the sense of not pushing yourself too much, of giving yourself time to play, to relax, have a nice meal, have a beer, whatever your trip might be. And don't feel that just because the state of the world out there is desperate, I'm talking not just environment, but you know, I spent yesterday evening taking home a guy who was having alcoholic Delirium tremens. What's the word? The DTS, you know, yeah. you know, and vomiting in the in our car as I drove him home, and then sitting with him for a couple of hours, because for the previous three days he'd had no light or heat on in his house. He'd spent it all in booze, and just settling him. I'm talking not just environment. I'm talking practical hands-on. Poverty related human issues as well. And even in a situation like that, seeing the beauty of the person. And when he emailed me this morning to say he was feeling much better and getting himself, trying to get himself sorted, I just saw what a privilege. What a grounding. I can't really explain it, but there's something about that kind of situation which is fairly common in an area like this a social area like this where there are the depths of being in hard pressed people that makes all the academic and middle class and what have you world that I also move in feel very superficial in comparison so again this shamanic thing of always walking with a foot in both worlds. Then you stop worrying, you know, <laughs> because you're part of a bigger whole shebang. And we started off talking about time and eternity. You start seeing things in a more cosmological holding. You think about the Buddha, what did he do? Three things. He went and sat underneath a tree, connecting with nature, observing what was going on. He received enlightenment, connecting with consciousness. And then what did he do? He went out and formed the noble Sangha, the spiritual community. I love that.
0: And I I wanted to come on to talk about spiritual activism, which is something that you've taught and written so much about. And perhaps you could begin by elaborating a little bit more on that idea of what spiritual activism is?
1: For me, spiritual activism is recognising that if our activism, if our action for change in the world, social change, environmental change, religious change, whatever, if that's only coming from an ego level, we will go the way you see so often with activists, you will either burn out or sell out. So the question for activists who are in for the long haul is how are we going to sustain what we are doing and I believe that requires drawing on spiritual resources by which I mean deep inner connection (coughs) working first of all through the psychological layers of what drives us so for example to deal with the fact that often in our activism when we're younger um, we're projecting issues with our parents onto the world. I Hate My Dad, as one activist had on a placard, following all the others who are down with the government, up the corporation, ban the bomb, and so on. You know, what's really going on here? What's what's driving it? And when you're younger, often it's a way in which you are resolving personal psychological issues mm. that we all carry. Um, in the world but as you get older you can't carry on you know if you're still my age and still I hate my dad it's kind of grow up <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so then you you deepen into the spiritual you see and, and particularly the issue of how in the face of all the suffering can you carry it so you know in the example that I mentioned earlier of somebody who is suffering from the alcoholic DT's Last night, um, one of my colleagues at at the I better not say, but I don't want to risk identifying the person. But one of my colleagues said to me, "Well, you know, w- we can help him, but we can't work it through for him." Because we were all, there was part of us that was kind of like, "What can we do to help? He's such a good guy. He's so talented, yet he's destroying himself with alcohol in 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 this way." And she said, interestingly, she's a Buddhist. Uh, she said, "You know, we can't." do his work for him you cannot you cannot sort out somebody else's karma for them, you can support them as they work through their own karma you can create an environment, as Raymond Panica puts it, only forgiveness breaks the law of karma so you cannot hold things against people, you can be patient, including self-forgiveness towards people, all of that but at the end of the day Each person's got to work out their own karma. That's what life's about and all it's suffering. And you know, Adam, sometimes I think we're all in deep doom and gloom about the state of the world just now. And yet if we're really serious about wanting to do the spiritual work, if we're really serious in wanting to be in solidarity where there is suffering, would we choose any other world? Would we be fulfilled If everything was hunky-dory and there was no suffering in the world, would that allow us to grow spiritually? I sometimes just wonder. Mm. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I think it's actually, I actually find it quite a helpful question. Mm. You know, when you're dealing with some really shitty situation, And then thinking, well, would I really rather be somewhere else? Or is this the context that gives me meaning and teaching and humanising?
0: And is the utopia somewhere we'd like to get to? Or is it the journey along the way?
1: Yeah, and, you know, maybe heaven isn't for this world, it's for heaven. And then the paradox that maybe this world becomes heaven when we start to understand that and we make heaven here and now in amongst all the brokenness i mean that's what old man jesus said you know they said to him when's heaven coming when's it going to happen you know is it going to be next week is it going to be over there and he says no no he says you got it all wrong the realm of heaven is within it's in the human heart total trip
0: out (laughs) and that really is what a pilgrimage is all about as well that's what the pilgrimage of life is about because the destination is very much just a framework for the journey.
1: And on a a literal pilgrimage, on a walking pilgrimage, like you've done big time and I've done in the way I've described, on that kind of pilgrimage, what's happening is that particularly in the solitude, and the spiritual teachers all say that solitude, silence, is very important for this to happen. You gradually settle into the unconscious and deep stuff starts coming up. And you may not quite realise it at the time, you know, when I was walking in the pilgrimage, I was battling the elements. I was I was only just in the limits of my capability to go across that terrain on a sustained basis with a 20-kilogram pack on my back. I was just on the edge in, in literally all weathers, from blazing sunshine to hailstorms. I was, I was only just holding in there so my consciousness was almost entirely well I had the expression every next step I was having to pay attention to every next step very literally because as you'll see in some of the photographs there were very deep bogs Mm -hmm. in which I could have badly come a cropper not least or places I could have broken a leg or whatever every next step careful attention so you know all these philosophical thoughts are not actually happening much of the time when walking, it's when you sit down afterwards and something starts coming up. that the richness of it materializes. Writer, I don't know if you noticed, but I, I, I hid something in that book, but right at the very back of the acknowledgements I put a couple of extra paragraphs where I tell about a dream I had while writing the book. And so one of the things I'm wrestling with is the tension between, if you like, nature religion and conventional religion as you have on the island. And in this dream, I found myself in a Hebridean church, a traditional church with a huddled congregation all in big coats because it was so cold and all black and huddled up. And it's my job to give the sermon. And I'm standing there totally tongue-tied because the sermon is meant to be in the book of Amos. And all that I can remember from the book of Amos was the line, let justice roll down like a mighty river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. And they're kind of, you know, not really there for the social justice message. And I'm standing there for nearly an hour, tongue-tied in the pulpit. And there's this hymn board with the hymn numbers or psalm numbers on it. And gradually they start to fade. And they never entirely fade, but in the background, like developing out of an old photographic plate, emerges my totem animal of the walk, the Blue Mountaineer. And the dream comes to an end, and I'm left with this image that it's about both. You don't have to choose either or. You can have the likes of the Psalms, in all the human spiritual grittiness and you can have the wild, free-flowing, feminine spirit of the Blue Mountain here. So that sense of the way things develop, the way things slowly crystallize, that's what pilgrimage can open up on us if we wish, if we ask inwardly, if we ask beyond ourselves to receive it. <laughs>
0: You've been listening to Spoken Earth, a Lacuna magazine production. Edited and produced by Uli Matson, music by Uli Matson, performed along with Ben O'Connor and Amir Shoat. Thanks for listening.